Ty Lee, welcome to the new school. Thank you. It's good to be with you. You are the program officer for science with the Conservation and Science Program at the Packard Foundation. You've also, before that, uh, been director of the Center for Environmental Studies at Williams College in Massachusetts. And you are the author of a quite extraordinary book called Compass and Gyroscope, Integrating Science and Politics for the Environment. So I was enthusiastic about talking with you because you've thought a lot about how to manage uh, large-scale ecosystems for sustainability. And I wanted to start with your book, Compass and Gyroscope, Integrating Science and Politics for the Environment, from Island Press. Um, what is the core thesis of that book? Well, the metaphor um, of compass and gyroscope um, is basically that uh, to, to suggest that in navigation you need uh, more than one kind of instrument um, to, to help you uh, go in, the, in, you know, from where you want to go, uh, from where you are to where you want to go. Um, and the compass is a symbol to me of science, of setting directions, finding uh, where true north is, um, <clears throat> enabling one to, 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 to see what directions are really out there in the world. <clears throat> and the gyroscope, uh, which is uh, uh, a tool that, that maintains a constant direction in space, um, even as a ship is turning, um, a gyroscope is a steering mechanism uh, that I've that, I, I st that to me stands for uh, a political uh, collective will uh, that, that seeks out goals. Uh, and I think the pursuit of sustainability is, requires both an understanding of where the real world is, uh, that is consulting the compass, as well as understanding what the true values of the community are that need to be conserved over time, and that's the gyroscope. Uh, so the book is, is a discussion... Um, in a rather more practical and concrete way of how those uh, the, the interaction between science and politics uh, can be, uh, become more fruitful or to be, can be understood in a way that makes it more fruitful. Um, I wrote the book because there has always been a tension since the, uh, at least the end of the Second World War between science and politics, uh, between scientists on the one hand fearful of politicians intervening uh, in issues like stem cell research most recently, um, and on the other hand, a fear by many um, in democratic societies of scientific elitists uh, who, are, uh, who are dictating the direction of society. Uh, many of the climate deniers, I think, uh, would fit into that category of people who are fearful that science is being used as a cover for some kind of a, a, a takeover. Now, when you wrote this uh, book and published it in 1993, um, you, were, um, uh, you were writing about your experience with the Columbia River Basin in Washington State, uh, where you had been appointed to represent the state of Washington on the Northwest Power Planning Council, which was the, the planning council for this vast and, and vitally important river basin. Um, tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced on the Power Council. The Power Planning Council was uh, created 
in the wake of the controversies over nuclear power uh, and, and also the long-term decline of the salmon of the Columbia River Basin. The Columbia Basin is uh, the, the drainage of the Columbia River, um, which extends into Canada uh, quite, a, quite a long ways. Uh, has a land area about the size of France. Um, so it's quite a big piece of uh, territory. And historically, it was the most productive salmon river uh, in the United States. Um, uh, there are more productive ones uh, up in Alaska, uh, but, but in the, you know, traditionally, uh, there were tens of thousands of people, uh, indigenous people in the Columbia Basin, uh, who subsisted, who, who lived off the, those salmon. Then in the 1930s, as uh, the United States went through the Great Depression and dams were uh, built across uh, the Columbia and its major tributaries to, uh, to create electric power generation and to harness the water for uh, irrigation in, uh, in the drier parts of that terrain, uh, more and more of the salmon habitat was cut off, um, and, and it became very difficult for salmon, the remaining salmon, uh, to migrate uh, downward to the sea through the dams uh, and then to uh, come back and climb the dams, again, even though there were uh, fish passage facilities uh, provided. Um, also, this was another legacy of the New Deal was extremely low-cost electric power from the dams. And as uh, electric power demand grew in the uh, 1960s and uh, 70s, the, the electric utilities of the region uh, turned to nuclear power as uh, what they hoped would be uh, an inexpensive supplement to uh, the, the hydropower. Uh, but the dams, the, the nuclear power plants, proved to be economically a disaster, uh, and there were num a number of different uh, uh, power plants canceled. A lot of it was a bit like the recession of uh, that we've just we're just coming out of now in 2010. Um, that, that there were huge debts left behind uh, and, and lots of lawsuits, uh, people trying to, scrambling to, to recover resources and so on. And the Power Planning Council was formed in the midst of that uh, in an attempt to try to bring a regional-scale governance to the electric power system as well as to uh, the effort to, to conserve and to restore uh, the salmon of the Columbia River. So this was a, a vast area. I mean, it covers seven states, uh, Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Oregon, and two provinces of uh, Canada as well. Uh, and uh, it's just, uh, it's a huge chunk of territory uh, with uh, just major, major resources. And, and so this planning council really was an effort to bring together all the jurisdictions to figure out how to manage uh, this central resource. That's correct. Yeah. So there was a lot of uh, uh, a lot of my time on the Power Planning Council um, was really spent in uh, engaging with uh, levels of government uh, from Indian tribes, uh, who played a very important role because they had treaty claims to the water in the river uh, and to the fish swimming in the river, um, to local governments, uh, some of which were stoutly uh, opposed to the energy conservation measures that we were calling for, to uh, public uh, utilities, utilities that are owned by their uh, ratepayers, um, which had, uh, you know, as I said, historically very low power rates and really wanted to hang on to those economic benefits. Uh, these were often in rural areas. Uh, to uh, city, major cities like Seattle, uh, which has a publicly owned utility that serves it, um, 
uh, to the state governments, uh, the four United States uh, states, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, uh, formed what's called uh, an interstate compact, uh, and that is what the interstate compact gave rise to the Power Planning Council. So there was a lot of talking with governmental people and with stakeholders, um, many of whom were very nervous about uh, about what uh, a coordinated plan might do uh, for themselves. And one of the lessons that I think I learned uh, to come to this is, uh, is that in a sufficiently complicated situation, uh, people find it extremely difficult to even know what their self-interest is, that their self-interest can often diverge from what they think their self-interest is. Uh, I think that as the political polarization in the United States has grown over the, uh, you know, over the 20 years since I was working on Compass and Gyroscope, I've seen that more and more of people making strenuous arguments uh, that are actually not supported by the facts uh, and, and are contrary to their own interests. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the sobering realities about uh, the attempt to Govern democratically uh, in a complicated, globalized world. So, in complex situations, we simply may not know uh, the policies that may represent our real interests. Yes, that's right. right. And 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 if and by by real interests, I mean that if uh, if one has a serious face-to-face conversation uh, and tries uh, not to browbeat uh, the person you're talking with, but to engage in. Uh, you know, a conversation where you're hearing what the other person's saying, uh, and they're hearing you. Uh, if you're bringing facts to the table uh, that they may not know about or care about um, until this conversation, they may come to have a very different concept of what their interests, uh, in fact, are. So, uh, take a you know simple example: energy conservation. Um, a vast amount of the energy used in the United States is wasted. Um, wasted in the sense that it's not doing people any good. They're, they're not getting anything out of it. Uh, but uh, it's also, and, and it, in order to use it more efficiently, uh, they could actually make money by avoiding uh, energy bills, uh, electric power bills, or fuel bills. Uh, but people don't seem to understand that this is the case uh, until you have a serious conversation with them. Uh, and this was Amory Levin's thesis in Soft Energy Paths. Yes, yes. And it took a long time, but now that moved from being a radical position into uh, the, the mainstream of energy policy. It has become part of the mainstream uh, in the corporate world. Uh, and I think that corporations, uh, for all of their uh, many limitations, uh, corporations do think hard about their economic interest. And I think uh, corporations, including uh, uh, many large utilities, um, came to understand that energy conservation was the cheapest way to meet future demand, was to encourage uh, people to use energy more efficiently. Um, uh, and but that's you know that being said, uh, an analysis done uh, a couple of years ago by the consulting firm McKinsey and Company uh, demonstrated that there's still a huge amount of energy that's not being that that that's being wasted in the sense that uh, one could make money by using it more efficiently and and it would be easy to you know a lot of it is very easy to do so things like putting weather stripping around a door so that the cold air doesn't leak in in the winter time um, and and that the the best way to combat global warming from an economic standpoint is to is 
gather in these uh, energy efficiency gains. Now, those energy efficiency gains, and you cover this in uh, the compass and the gyroscope, are are not always easy to actualize because, as you point out, uh, many of those decisions are made by individual companies and individual households. And um, uh, you cite an example where you tried an experimental project in uh, one area of uh, the Columbia River Basin and didn't realize the uh, hoped-for gains at the level that had been expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we see that, that, that same dynamic at work today. Uh, to take another example of the elusiveness of self-interest, um, think about fishermen and catching the dwindling number of salmon. Uh, salmon uh, caught in the river or in the ocean uh, are are. are the fishermen are trapped in something that uh, that's called a tragedy of the commons. Uh, you don't own the fish until you've caught it and killed it, um, so you have no interest in conserving the number of live fish out there because if you don't catch the fish, somebody else will. Um, and so the self-interest of the fishermen actually lies in in collective governance, in in setting rules where everybody will uh, allow enough fish to live for another day. And yet it is not in the interest of any individual fisherman to do that. Um, and, and fishermen, uh, you know, to this day, uh, are very highly resistant of uh, collective action uh, solutions, especially when they're associated with the government. And yet they are the ones who would be the prime beneficiaries of this. So, so th- this is, these are uh, simple examples of something that I think is uh, a very deep and widespread uh, challenge to industrialized uh, economies and to globalized cultures. That is, what, where does our self-interest actually lie, and how do we find the social discipline uh, to move in that direction? Because uh, in energy conservation, for example, it's a lot uh, more effective. It turns out to be a lot more effective to require, uh, in, through building codes, uh, that new construction of structures, houses, and so on, be much more energy efficient than they would be otherwise. Uh, this adds a small amount to the price of a, of a building, but you make that back in terms of fuel savings, uh, typically within uh, two or three years. So, so that's the kind of thing that, and yet getting people to install these things after the house is built uh, is a really tough, uh, really tough thing to do. So we do need some uh, regulatory action, some uh, some governmental action to make uh, our common to realize our common interest. Uh, and yet, of course, that's uh, proved to be increasingly controversial. We'll come back to the book, but you mentioned uh, fisheries as an example, and of course that's something that you were involved with centrally in Washington uh, with uh, the project you describe in Compass and Gyroscope, but it's also something that uh, you're involved with at the Packard Foundation, uh, uh, and one of uh, the programs at Packard is the California Coastal and Marine Initiative uh, program, which uh, has a strategic plan done in uh, 2008 that's on your website. Um, uh, What have you learned? Uh, Let's just take this as an example, but please feel free to move on from it. Uh, What have you learned from being a science program officer at, I believe it's the sixth largest foundation in the United States, with a major commitment uh, to the environment, uh, to California, to marine life, uh, to the West, and so on, uh, about um, 
science and policy that either reinforces or shifts the understanding that informed compass and gyroscope. Okay, let's, uh, that's a, uh, 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 remind me if I wander away, because that's, a, that's an ambitious question you just asked. Sure, we'll, we'll keep uh, at it. I've learned, uh, first of all, I, you know, most of my uh, working career was in academic life, uh, where I was, um, I was uh, trying to maintain uh, uh, neutrality and kind of a, uh, taking an analytical approach. So one of the things I've learned by working in uh, the foundation and uh, nonprofit sector is how to be proud of what people are doing uh, to try to change the world in a constructive way. And I think one of the great achievements of my colleagues and grantees in the Coastal California Marine Initiative uh, is the way that they have uh, they have pressed successfully um, for a new network of uh, well over a hundred marine protected areas off the California coast, um, which which uh, preserves uh, a, a notable fraction, about five percent of the uh, ocean area in state waters. It's not a large fraction. But it's biologically extremely important in the sense that these provide now refuges uh, for fish uh, and, and other kinds of marine life, uh, so that so that we have not only we have living samples. It's in a sense like a zoo, uh, but it's also uh, like a, like a ranch in the sense that that uh, we, that these uh, living things now have the opportunity to grow. Uh, and when they uh, swim outside of the marine protected areas to be harvested by fisher, fishermen, uh, recreational fishermen, and, uh, and commercial fishermen. Um, so we're actually uh, contributing to the well-being of uh, a very hard-pressed part of the uh, California economy, the, the fishing sector. Uh, so one thing is I'm very proud of, of being associated with that. Mm-hmm. second thing is uh, that that from the outside, uh, looking at a philanthropy, particularly a big foundation like Packard, um, uh, you have the sense of uh, people there uh, essentially making uh, you know these these Olympian choices, standing above the fray and deciding how to drop a million dollars here and a million dollars there. Uh, so a second lesson that I've learned is it's a lot harder to give away money than you might think at first. <laughs> um, and it's harder because... Uh, finding the grantees uh, who combine the passion and the capacity and the organizational endurance uh, to achieve something uh, like uh, uh, creating a new network of uh, protected areas, uh, that's not easy. And in many cases, uh, big foundations uh, that are patient uh, spend part of their resources on actually building up uh, grantees who who are then truly partners um, in achieving this, uh, uh, these kinds of outcomes. Um, a third thing that I think that I would say that, that, that I've learned is that uh, the mix of science and politics uh, that I wrote about in Compass and Gyroscope uh, is, um, is every bit as uh, difficult to, to, to maintain in a positive way um, as uh, I thought it was in the academic world. Now I have the opportunity... Uh, which I'm trying to exercise as uh, as well as I can. I have the opportunity to try to uh, help that mix along. So science and politics are a bit like oil and water, um, and and uh, and you can either make an oil slick out of it, or you can make mayonnaise. And my job is to make mayonnaise, uh, right. to make something that's um, uh, that that is 
better than either oil or water separately, um, but that can that but that combines the best parts of it. Uh, not something that becomes a sludgy mess uh, and gets out of control. Uh, but based on, uh, that's very helpful, based on y- your subsequent experience since 1993, 17 years, um, would you say that your analysis, if you were writing a sequel to Compass and Gyroscope about integrating science and politics for the environment, would you say that there's been new learning that has in any important way shifted your analysis as you described it there. Yes, uh, I think that the, the major uh, qualification uh, is that I, that I was more optimistic about the possibilities of American politics uh, than has turned out to be the case. Uh, I think that the, the argument in Compass and Gyroscope uh, is that it would be possible through the standard model of American politics, the competition uh, among interest groups, um, to achieve workable compromises uh, that would, over time, lead toward more sustainable uh, action in, in dealing with all of our natural resources. And this process of adjustment and learning uh, is something that, that is called adaptive management, a term that I did not invent, but which I tried to popularize through that book. And the concept of adaptive management, very simply, is that uh, in most of our major public policies and decisions, we don't actually, uh, we can't actually count on on uh, getting the result that we wanted to get, and that uh, if we, if, so if we tr- take all of those actions uh, and treat them as experiments, uh, as learning opportunities, we can learn if we set out, if we realize we need to learn from the beginning, um, and and that's something that I think we we continue to uh, uh, to struggle with. That's turned out to be very difficult for a very simple human reason. Uh, if the result of a major decision, uh, well, ma- most major decisions are controversial. And if the result of a decision is something other than what you expected, then uh, the people, the controversy is reignited. Uh, and once that controversy is reignited, uh, the people who said, this is definitely going to work to do this, uh, if they say, but in fact, it didn't happen that way, we didn't get those same results, their opponents will say, you see, we're wrong. You don't deserve to continue in power. Let us give a chance. Let us have a chance at this. Um, and this happens uh, in many, many arenas uh, in our in our public life. Uh, and so there's a real aversion uh, for people to admit that they can be wrong, and then uh, and a real aversion to disclosing information on the performance of our public policies uh, because they're afraid that their opponents will will gain the upper hand. So you, you describe how adaptive management is closely linked to what you and others call social learning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you say in Compass and Gyroscope that one of the uh, key points, which, which you're talking about right now, is, is that, um, that uh, adaptive management is not free and that there are high political costs uh, to a system that requires that uh, that you embrace error, in effect. Uh, when Don Michaels, one of the great uh, pioneers of social learning, talked about this, uh, he described the, the fundamental importance of organizations that embrace error um, as, uh, as opposed to punishing error. Mm-hmm. And you are describing exactly this, that not only in organizations but in political systems, the effort to say, you know what, we tried that and we blew it, 
uh, doesn't work very well politically, and it also doesn't work in a lot of organizations. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I, you know, in fact, these are lessons that I learned from Don Michael uh, and and some of his important books uh, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you're exactly right that that and and embracing error, embracing tolerating ambiguity, another term that comes from that literature. Um, is extremely difficult. Uh, we've probably gone further down this line of being able to learn effectively in uh, in medicine than we have in any other arena of uh, of, of public life. Uh, and so we found, you know, we've discovered, for example, that uh, hormone therapies don't work the way that they that we thought they would. That there's uh, mammograms may not be effective. That prostate uh, cancer may, you know, the, the ways to treat prostate cancer should be uh, altered in light of experience. Uh, that some drugs work and other ones don't work. All of that is saving thousands and thousands of lives, but it also inc- it, it includes, uh, you know, it, it is it is purchased through the discipline of doing careful experiments, uh, of doing things like uh, placebo, giving some people placebos, uh, giving something a medicine that's not a medicine, uh, to see whether uh, the, the purported medicine actually achieves a cure compared to the situation where the medicine is in fact not administered. Um, these are wrenching things to do at a human level. Uh, and, and if you think about our ecosystems, uh, we're, we are out there uh, removing animals or adding other uh, forms of life, uh, altering habitats, uh, and very rarely is it possible to say, you know, there might be some unanticipated consequences. We ought to monitor them. Even when unanticipated consequences appear, uh, it can be, it can be, it can take decades before uh, their import uh, is apparent, and 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 decisions change. So. Give you a concrete example from the Columbia Basin where I worked. Um, in in the 1970s, as the last dams were uh, completed in the Columbia Basin, uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which operates the dams, began to trap migrating juvenile salmon as they collected behind the dams uh, and load them into barges uh, and and send the barges down through uh, uh, down down the river and release them into the ocean. Um, well, this was, you know, obviously an unnatural way to treat these fish, uh, although the dams were pretty unnatural also. Uh, and it's taken, uh, it's taken more than 30 years uh, for that, that process to be evaluated um, in an unbiased and honest way, intellectually honest way. It turns out that sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work, and people have gradually learned how to do it better um, but all all along, there was a big control issue about whether the fish, once they went into the barges, were under the control of an agency that also ran the dams and therefore uh, couldn't possibly have the interest of the fish at, in, at heart, uh, versus leaving them in the water where the Indian tribes and uh, state resource agencies, fish and wildlife, fish and game agencies, uh, could watch over them in some sense. Well, they couldn't watch over, they couldn't protect them from the effects of the dams uh, and the predators uh, that, that were encouraged by the, uh, the dams. Um, and there was a huge amount of, uh, uh, of dispute uh, that really interfered with the learning process. Now, when I was there in the, in the 1980s, of course, I watched this uh, happening, uh, but I had, I had more confidence then 
that the political system could engage in uh, deliberate learning, and that through that learning, uh, the society would learn uh, and, and in time to, to, to retrieve uh, a level of sustainable uh, balance that would be uh, something like the ideals uh, that we bring you know, forward historically, that there would continue to be a large migratory fish in the Columbia uh, in, in significant numbers, that there would be uh, more efficient use of the electricity generated by the river and by other sources. Um, and what I'd have to say is I'm, I'm, I'm still optimistic about the possibility of uh, major movements towards sustainability. I think we've made major uh, movements towards sustainability, as you said before, about the acceptance of Amory Levinson's ideas, for example, uh, as, as mainstream notions. Um, and I'm optimistic that we will continue to, to gain those. What I'm not so optimistic about is the cost that we will incur along the way. And I think that we are uh, losing species, losing habitats, uh, things that we won't be able to recover uh, later on because the gene pools will be gone. Um, and, and it's taking... So there are a lot of victims that continue to be losers, uh, whether they're landscapes or ways of life of human beings or uh, species and, and ecosystems. Uh, that are that are uh, that are hostages and ultimately they're victims of the slow pace of social learning and the and the difficulty that humans have of of understanding where their self interest lies. And I don't mean you know sometimes people dismiss environmental concerns as long term self interests of the rich. Uh, I'm really talking about uh, sustenance of uh, indigenous peoples, other people who are very poor in an economic sense. Uh, but perhaps live in rich environments uh, and, and, and who, who want desperately to, to, to preserve their way of life. So, so this is not, I'm not trying to, you know, the, the point, the case I'm making about the importance of looking for a more sustainable economy um, and of doing so quickly um, is not an argument f uh, at all from the privileged. I think the privileged have, have done a pretty poor job of being stewards generally. In, in, uh, the Compass and the Gyroscope, uh, you have a wonderful chapter, chapter six, on navigational lore, expectations of learning. And it, it speaks to this question of how much social learning goes on. And, uh, and you're very clear that uh, a lot of people who have looked at this uh, say that real social learning is the exception rather than the rule. That is to say that, in general, that organizations... Uh, and uh, uh, large uh, associations uh, often don't learn. Uh, uh, and you have a wonderful uh, little uh, diagram in which you distinguish between the individual learner, you know, how each of us learns, and then what you call the, the, the purposive organization, which is a group of people who are all trying to accomplish the same thing, and then the, the collective entity, which is when a, a group of people like the folks in representing different states in the Columbia River Basin or uh, a group of people in another of your case studies uh, from different countries around the Mediterranean get together because the cost of doing nothing is higher than, uh, uh, than the painful decision to try to work stuff out together. So uh, it seems as if as we move up that scale from individual learning, which is hard enough, often we don't learn the lessons of our own lives, 
to purposive organizations where at least we have the same goals, but we still may not be learning all that much. And then to, co to uh, collectives where people have different uh, uh, interests, but they are bound to each other by what I think you call hyper-interdependency. Uh, and at each level, there's a major loss in social learning. So, uh, so the hope that social learning and adoptive management will help us get to sustainability is, uh, is theoretically bounded by how much loss there is at each of those levels uh, in the social learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, in a way, I mean, your, your description of this, which is uh, both accurate and generous, uh, makes me think about uh, trophic levels in ecosystems, that there are, uh, you know, there are uh, ten times as many uh, uh, things that, that are pho photosynthesizers, uh, green plants, and, and so on, as, as the next level, the plant eaters, uh, like cattle, uh, and, and, uh, and then the flesh eaters are still smaller uh, as, the, as the solar energy works its way up through the food chain. Um, and, and in a way, I think that's, uh, you know, this, this is right, that, that, it, that learning becomes more and more difficult uh, as you get toward uh, higher levels of social organization. On the other hand, let me you know, let me cite uh, as a as, let me call as a witness now, uh, President George W. Bush, um, uh, who in his most in his recently published uh, autobiography uh, describes what happened at the end of his presidential term in 2008, uh, when when he uh, was facing this uh, mushrooming financial crisis, uh, and where uh, his Treasury Secretary came to him and said. Uh, sir, we really need to take drastic action, um, and and Bush understood that this would be this would overturn all of his conservative principles for the government to wade in with things like the TARP and the, the bank bailout and uh, massive uh, countercyclical spending and so on. And Bush says in his book um, that he looked at that alternative of uh, inflicting a lot of uh, suffering on people. Uh, or of being true to his ideals, and he said, "I had to be, uh, I had to put my ideals aside to do something that's realistic." That's fascinating. Now that's something that now, that's that, social learning. That's social learning right. exactly, because what you have is now you know, seventy years earlier, Herbert Hoover, um, uh, a, a president who was thought of by uh, by his constituents then as a much more thoughtful and deliberate person uh, than George W. Bush was. Um, uh, Herbert Hoover decided just the other way and threw the country and the world into the Great Depression. Now, uh, what has happened in between is that collective learning has occurred as economists um, gathered information uh, across the economy, across the world, and that, and that information uh, filtered up and it refined the understanding of how depressions and recessions actually operate. Uh, and so one of the leading scholars of that process has been Bernanke, the current chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. And Bernanke understood, and he and the Treasury Secretary at the time helped to persuade President Bush that they need that they actually knew enough uh, to to uh, uh, you know to to save the economy from another uh, depression. The great irony is that the American voter. Uh, the American public now does not appreciate what they were saved from because they were saved from it. It didn't happen. 
And instead, uh, President Obama, who did not fashion these policies, but he kept them in place, um, and the Democratic Congress, uh, which again uh, did not fashion these policies in the first instance, although they endorsed them once the Bush administration came up with them, it is Obama and the Congress that have been punished in the 2010 elections uh, for being profligate spenders, socialists. You know, there's a lot of those kinds of uh, tags that have been thrown around. Uh, and and so the collective learning is still fragile. Um, and 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 so the, the fragility of that uh, learning after uh, 80 years of experience, I think, is a, is a, a very interesting benchmark on one of the most successful pieces of social learning that I think the world has seen thus far, that's the creation of uh, national macroeconomic policies that can stabilize economies and keep them from uh, going into the ditch. Um, and, and, and so will, will we get to the point um, uh, within my children's lifetime where uh, there will be global uh, environmental policies that have that same kind of uh, Resilience and 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 broad acceptance uh, in the world. I think that we're likely to. The answer is likely to be yes. Uh, but again, a lot will have. A lot of people and a lot of ecosystems will have literally paid with their lives before that. Uh, before that hap- as that happens. But I would I would you know point out that 40 years ago, uh, there was very little understanding about uh, water pollution, air pollution, uh, and that the. Air in Los Angeles uh, today is far cleaner than it was uh, in 1970, uh, even though the number of cars and the, and the number of residents in Los Angeles has increased tremendously. Uh, and, and that's all a reflection of both technological innovation and institutional innovation that, re- that, that represents a very significant piece of uh, collective learning. So that the reason I'm optimistic, I'm not. I don't think I'm being a Pollyanna or a fool when I say that uh, much more along that line is going to happen. Uh, but I would say that uh, I've gotten old faster than I thought I would <laughs> before, before seeing as much progress as I hope right. to see right. uh, in the early 1990s. But uh, I think in that I'm not alone. Right. I, I will just introduce a caveat that there are thoughtful people who differ from your perspective that Bernanke's policy represents accurate social learning. And uh, that they uh, they think that these policies, uh, in the long run, will add to social pain rather than detract from oh, yes. it. So, oh, I think that's right. uh, yeah, that, there there's there's a different view, but right? Also intellectually, that right. That, that that debate goes on. About right. What the, what the right collective lessons? Right. And certainly, a, a great many thoughtful people in Europe uh, do not share. Bernanke's view of, of how one deals with mm-hmm. this situation. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is, we, we've got only one economy, so we can't do laboratory experiments. Exactly. What we can do is to try to observe carefully uh, and then do lots of arguing, which is what's going on now, right. about what the uh, observations that we have uh, mean in light of the historical, uh, you know, in light of the historical context. Right. I want to go uh, to another of your chapters in Compass and Gyroscope, and th- this will be uh, you know, slightly wonky point, but uh, I found it extraordinarily interesting. Uh, you describe something that you call civic science, and I'm not sure anybody else has invented that concept, although I think maybe one finds it in the concepts of policy science that people talk about sometimes. But um, uh, And a very key point here is that you describe... Uh, 
uh, civic science. Uh, uh, you say it should be uh, managing large ecosystems should rely not merely on science, but on civic science. It should be irreducibly public in the way responsibilities are exercised, intrinsically technical, and open to learning from errors and profiting from success. Uh, and then you, you go on to say something that I think is extraordinarily important about civic science. This is the wonky part, which is that you talk about uh, the, bias, the bias in regular science against type 2 errors, which are the rejection as false of propositions that turn out to be true. Because conventional science has guarded against type 1 errors, accepting as true a proposition that turns out to be false, but has paid little attention to type 2 errors. And I, I regard that as an extraordinarily important point in, in, in one of the fields that we've done a lot of work on, which is integrative health uh, issues. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with your own health, for example, just as at a policy level, and I often make this uh, comparison, when you're dealing with your own health, let us suppose that, um, that there is a hypothesis that, say, increasing your intake of vitamin D3, that there are some studies that approve that and other studies that don't, but that you're dealing with a health problem that um, that might help. And if you're only concerned about type 1 errors, you will want to wait until the science is completely airtight. Mm -hmm. But here you are, a living human being with a limited lifespan, and you may say to yourself, you know, I'm not sure this will work, but there's some reason to think it will work, and therefore I'm not going to uh, avoid uh, 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 just focus on type 1 errors here. I'm going to increase my vitamin D3 intake because it might help. Uh, and it seems to me that the parallel to civic science is very strong, that decision makers are making decisions with uh, what you call, you know, bounded in conditions of bounded uh, rationality. They, they don't have all the information. Uh, they're making limited choices. Um, and yet, if something looks as if it might work, uh, and there's enough reason to think it might, uh, they may be inclined to try that. Mm -hmm. So it just seems to me, if you talk a little bit about um, the historical antecedents of your concept of civic science, did you invent the term? Have others used it before? And have others made that same point about uh, wanting to learn more from type 2 errors to be sure that we don't reject something that may turn out to be true and important? Yeah, at, at one level, I think that... Um, I think that the, the focus on type two error um, is is very much uh, related to what uh, in the environmental world is called a precautionary principle. Right. Uh, to to think about how much uh, harm you could be missing, given your very limited uh, view of, of of reality, um, and and before you embrace something and, and jump into it, um, the concept of civic science, as I articulated it, which uh, you know, which in a kind of uh, simple approach is uh, how do you combine rigorous science uh, <clears throat> with a with a democratic politics, um, and and uh, that combination when it works uh, is civic science. Uh, is that's a combination that I think, uh, in a way, I mean, a lot of people uh, in the academic world I think accept that notion implicitly. They don't 
they don't call it out that way, but that's uh, what a great deal of uh, the, the subfield called policy science that you mentioned before, a lot of risk analysis, uh, is really an attempt to, to work within uh, within that 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 frame, and a great deal of uh, the regulation uh, of an agency like the EPA is organized around that the ideal of, of civic science, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work terribly well, as as, as I think we can all see. Um, so it's difficult to do. Um, uh, now, in in terms of the uh, the the type one, type two, uh, these are ideas that come out of statistics, uh, and and uh, the 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 key idea in uh, in most almost all of the conventional sciences uh, is uh, if you're going to announce that there is actually a natural law uh, that when you do A, B will follow uh, under conditions C, D, E, and F, um, that you need to establish that that when you do A, that B actually occurs, uh, and and uh, when in the world, you know, so, so sometimes that happens very uh, mechanistically. Uh, you know, you cut a string and, uh, you know, this package falls apart, the, the packaging falls apart. But oftentimes it is, uh, it's something that, that you can't see very well. You, you, you administer uh, medicine and, and some patients get better and other ones don't. Um, and in the, this way the scientist is, is trained to think, uh, establishing that when A happens, then B is the result, uh, is the is, is sort of the gold standard of what it means to to have done science. Uh, but it could also be the case that uh, that by doing A, uh, you prevent B from happening. Uh, that's a, and and but how do you know if that's the case? Uh, well, you do A, and sometimes B happens, sometimes B doesn't happen. Uh, and if you think about A being uh, uh, control of a pollutant, so the pollutant goes out into the atmosphere, a toxin goes into the drinking water supply or the food supply. Uh, if you if you remove the toxin, sometimes people will not get cancer. Uh, sometimes they continue to get cancer. Uh, if you keep people from smoking, you know, lung cancer rate might might go down. Um, but oftentimes in the social world, as, as we're embedded in. Uh, lots and lots of interventions that are uh, cooked up by a globalized economy, uh, it can be really hard to figure out which Bs are prevented by doing A. Uh, and and the question that, that the scientific way to ask that question is, uh, if, you did, if you did A and you're not sure if it works, how big a B could you have avoided? That is, that is to say, uh, how much harm can you can you would you not know about because it's lost in the noise and the high background rate of uh, uh, some kind of cancer and and you make one little change and maybe that helped and maybe it didn't help but how big an effect could you have had and not known about it um, right. that's the question that I think is uh, what I was calling type two error mm-hmm. and the answer to your question is I don't see very much uh, interest in type two errors uh, analysis. Uh, even yet, um, there's some awareness, uh, you know, and it, it remains, I mean, your word exactly right. It's wonky. This is a wonky concern. And yet, uh, out of this wonky concern, uh, you know, flows this kind of broader issue about how, what are, what are appropriate precautions for a world that we're modifying 
at, at the enormous and accelerating pace that we're modifying it. In fact, the, the point about wonkiness is really interesting because, you know, there's a level at which for most human beings, policy questions like those we're discussing, not just, uh, not just civic science or science questions, but policy questions tend to be essentially boring to most people because human beings are designed to learn by stories. You know, that's sort of how we learn. And so we're, we're in this tragic sort of cognitive situation in which, uh, as you point out in your book, um, you know, the future of the world of sustainability depends on our capacity to get together as a species and begin to engage in adaptive management with the compass of science and the gyroscope of politics. But the conversations about that tend to bore people to tears. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's almost a, a cognitive problem for how we perceive and learn uh, as much as it is uh, anything else. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I think that that's why, and, you know, and the, the other thing I would say about uh, my own intellectual journey since uh, completing Compass and Gyroscope is that uh, I went on to teach uh, for uh, another 14 years uh, at Williams, and, and increasingly my teaching... Uh, tr- incorporated elements from the uh, the humanities, from literature, poetry, art, a lot of art. Uh, and what I was trying to do was to respond to this cognitive challenge that you're talking about. And and one of the things I learned from that is that uh, that the irrational plays a very important part in stewardship. And and that uh, and what I mean by that is that there are places that inspire people. Um, whether, and, to, and to inspire people to take care of them, and and sometimes those places are uh, culture, you know, heavily culture-oriented uh, uh, places, uh, sacred shrines, uh, you know, the cathedral, and so on. Sometimes they are natural places, uh, and I think America is very rich in natural places that people want to conserve, uh, and and sometimes. Uh, this loyalty to place is a loyalty to family and to relate to a web of human relationships uh, rather than to artifacts and architecture. And it's uh, interesting just on that point that, that in the Packard Foundation materials, when they talk about the choices of what they've chosen to preserve, they talk about not, not only the biodiversity piece of it, but culturally iconic landscapes. Mm-hmm. And so it seems as though that particular piece of learning has made its way into the Packard Foundation, where there's this sort of dual focus on let's conserve both that which is critical to biodiversity and natural resources, but also to that which is culturally iconic and people can mobilize around. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, yeah. and, and the concept of civic science doesn't have uh, love and loyalty uh, and determination uh, wrapped into it explicitly. Uh, and that's one of the. I think that's that's a, a kind of theme that I've tried to uh, that I've tried to develop, uh, often to the puzzlement of my students, I might add. But it's but I think that that it's been it's really important for there to be stories and images, uh, uh, you know, smells and sights and uh, and passions engaged here, uh, not necessarily because. Uh, the threats are, I mean, oftentimes the threats to the things that we love the most are impersonal ones. Uh, uh, corporate profits, uh, government uh, uh, aggrandizement, uh, uh, you know, it's the, 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 uh, 
progress of the death by a thousand cuts when uh, some new technology or way of harnessing the land uh, uh, spreads uh, spreads through the marketplace. Those are all impersonal forces. Mm-hmm. In order to combat them uh, and to divert them into more humane and productive and sustainable ways, it's really essential, I, I feel now, um, to enlist individual human uh, energies uh, and 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 wor- words that I would have shied away from 20 years ago. Uh, love and passion are, I think, uh, terrifically important ones. Uh, in our last five minutes, Kai, I want to uh, come back to your work at the Packard Foundation and and to ask. Uh, I think our listeners would be interested. Uh, what do you actually do uh, in this large portfolio in the conservation and the science program? How do you take uh, the the learnings and the perspective which you were hired to bring to Packard? They they hired you because they really thought you would bring something to them that they thought was was important. Uh, how have you actually managed to do that? in the portfolio of programs that you're responsible for in the conservation and science program? Well, very quickly, I mean, what I try to do first is to collaborate with my uh, colleagues, uh, all of whom are in the conservation part of the conservation science program, and I'm the science program. Mm -hmm. I try to keep myself uh, attuned to what they are doing and to support projects that will tend to contribute uh, funding in ways that will catalyze and accelerate progress toward their goals. Can you give us an example? Yes. Uh, One of my colleagues uh, has been working for uh, a number of years on transforming the marketplace in in seafood uh, by by fostering the spread of uh, Marine Stewardship Council uh, and other and similar kinds of certification so that um, uh, the seafood advice cards that you get from the Monterey Bay Aquarium and and other uh, settings that tell you that some kinds of fish are uh, are good are appropriate to eat others might taste good but they're not appropriate to eat that kind of thing so what I've done is to is to create a, an assessment a, a study that tries to look into how uh, these attempts to transform consumption in more sustainable directions have been working this is an idea that was invented about 25 years uh, it was a, it's come and gone but in its modern incarnation it started about uh, about 17 18 years ago uh, with Forest Stewardship Council on wood products and then Marine Stewardship uh, Council on uh, seafood uh, and then has spread now to lots and lots of uh, different areas uh, carbon offsets that are uh, that have gained some uh, popularity so that people can uh, offset the, the, the carbon footprint that they inflict uh, through travel and so on. Uh, that's the latest kind of uh, certified product uh, that's, that, that's you know, gaining that a lot of people know about. Well, those certified products only have very small market shares. They're all under 10%, which means they're not actually having the effect on the ground and in the woods and in the water that you want them to have if, if they could go to scale. Um, so we're looking into what it is about the logic of business enterprises uh, and government uh, regulation uh, that 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 hinders that, or is there you know are there cognitive issues as you brought up before in the consumer uh, issues about uh, how you get major retailers like Walmart and Home Depot to uh, to 
to join this bandwagon of demanding more sustainable products. And Walmart, uh, I mentioned those two companies because both of them have made significant strides uh, in, in that direction. So I try to fund work that is analytical and scientific, but which is directed toward, uh, toward supporting my colleagues in their conservation work. The second thing I try to do is what I called a while back uh, making mayonnaise. That is, a, 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 we have a theory of change called linking knowledge with action that essentially says you should support uh, you should support the production of knowledge when that knowledge will will have three characteristics the first characteristic is that it be scientifically credible that's something that everybody knows the science has to be solid but it also has to be timely and relevant uh, that is it has to be salient to the, somebody's got to, got to say gee i need that knowledge in order to make that decision and i need it when the knowledge is going to be produced and third, the knowledge has to be legitimate. It has to be produced under circumstances where somebody who might be sued or who might, uh, who might have to run a tough election uh, can turn around in a situation of conflict and say, I relied on this knowledge because I thought it was, uh, it was appropriate to bring to bear in this important public or corporate choice that I had to make, and that's still the case. So you need, you need salience, legitimacy, credibility, I'm looking for situations where those three things can be produced. Typically, it's produced jointly by the user and the researcher. Uh, and, and when I have that ability to, to link knowledge with action and also advance uh, the uh, strategies of my conservation colleagues, then I've got a grant to work on. Kylie, thank you for being with us at the New School.